Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Paul M., Todd W., Ryan S., Jackie A., and Sean M. On the program today is a returning guest, Mr. Ron Huckstein is with us. Ron is the president and CEO of Lundin Gold. The company is operating the large-scale Fruta del Norte underground gold mine in southeast Ecuador. The company also has a significant exploration grounds surrounding the Fruta del Norte complex. Lundin Gold is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol LUG, as well as the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol L-U-G-D-F. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you back on the program. Welcome. Oh, thanks very much. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ron. It's good to uh, talk to good people in the sector that are doing a great job out there, and you're certainly one of those guys. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Got a, got a great team, that's for sure. So, Ron, I'd like to start off here with just the general gold market. Give me your thoughts on where we are in this cycle on the back of, of course, bottlenecks in the industry with respect to the ability to bring on new mines, the financial debacles unfolding really essentially by design, but also further uncertainties with things like the Russia-Ukraine war and the likelihood of further escalation there. You know, what are your thoughts on the gold market at this point? We think we're we're in a, real, a rising gold market and we're really looking forward to 2022 and into 2023. And for that reason, you know, to put literally put our money where our mouth is, we had a gold prepay facility uh, that had 10 quarters yet to uh, pay into, which was roughly about 10,000 ounces a quarter. And we made the decision at the start of this year to pay that back in full right now. So we spent 208 million approximately to buy that back. So essentially pay it, brought it forward. And because we really truly believe that we're in a real strong gold market. When we did that, ideally we would have been able to do that when gold was at 1600 last year. But unfortunately we didn't have the cash at that time because we were paying our inaugural dividend. But we did it at the end of the year, gold was around 1800 or so, and it's paying off, it is paying off now for us. But there's all, all the factors you raised, the issues around the gold market, there hasn't been a lot of new discoveries, that sort of thing. You know, I think the other aspect is there's so many other things that are factoring into it. Gold is one of those unique commodities, you know, it's there is a so simply supply demand with jewelry, but you know, to, the central banks right now are buying gold at levels that we have that have never been seen before in history, because there's that that desire to get back to having that secure asset in very uncertain times. And then, you know, it, just the investment side of things are starting to look back at that. You know, as many fund managers have that golden rule is you should always have 10% of your fund in gold. And whether that's gold equities, some, some even say it should be in gold, period. And we're seeing that a lot more too, as well, which I think there's just a general feeling that given all the issues around the U.S. dollar, where's that going? The, the war in Russia and Ukraine, as you mentioned, financial uncertainty, uh, even China, Taiwan, where there's just so much uncertainty right now. And people, where do they go? They want to go back to gold. 
Yeah, well said. And definitely you layer on this regulatory issue and environmental issue with respect to developing mines globally now. Sure, we can shuffle aside the heavy-duty red tape that you would get in, say, I guess a late-stage nation, really, Ron, just to put it more straight, compared to even jurisdictions now that are developing jurisdictions and even the challenges with respect to permitting new mines in these jurisdictions. And I think that also has layered on a whole other level of, man, we're depleting so quickly here and there's nothing new coming online. Uh, that's another issue that's layered into this. So yeah, interesting times. You've got breakouts on the gold price in all major currencies except for the U.S. dollar. As you said, central banks are buying gold with the exception of, of course, the folks at the Federal Reserve in the U.S. Really interesting uh, period of time that we're living in here. Yeah, no, it's there's so many factors right now that, you know, you can look at many things. So you try to keep poking your balloon, right, to see is it are you just having that balloon keep raising and raising or something going to pop it. But every time you try to poke it, you just say, well, no, that's not going to have a big impact. You know, and the other thing that, uh, you know, that uh, you just raised is about new mines. You know, we were able to be successful here in Ecuador. There were two mines that came forward, one an open pit, one an underground. And being underground certainly helped. But I've started to see, and some of our team have started to see, this whole issue about open pits and moving forward with open pit mining. And, you know, there's just uh, mining. People don't realize how much they need mining. I think we still fight that as an industry, and we need to communicate better. But, yeah, it's... It's not going to get easier before it's going to be harder. One more item here just on the bigger market, Ron, before we move into lending gold. As you know, there have been more large transactions pending in the sector recently. Newmont looking out to take Newcrest. And then, of course, you've got the Glencore Tech dilemma, not exactly in gold, but nonetheless a major transaction. What are your thoughts on increasing M&A activity with the majors looking to consolidate? Well, you know, there's one of particular interest for us, which is the Newcrest Newmont transaction, because as as I'm sure you you know and your listeners know, Newcrest is one of our major shareholders beside the lending family. The lending family owns 27%. Newcrest owns 32. So obviously, we're watching that transaction very closely. You know, for lending gold, we see that only as positive. We're either we're going to take the opportunities we don't believe based on what we're hearing. We haven't been told, seen it in black and white, or been told either by Newmont or Newcrest that we are not part of the longer term plan for the combined entity. We have to be planning for that though. So one option, the family, and we look at purchasing that block for lending gold, uh, do a secondary offering type thing. And then we are masters of our destiny. And we got a phenomenal asset to base that new, base this new company on Fruta del Norte. Or Newmont says, yeah, okay, the family, but we want to actually look at trying to sell our block and then the company's in play. And so you talked about a lot of M&A activity having, you know, I think some people say, you know, that Fruta del Norte probably is still one of the few tier one assets out there today in a single company, you know, with 500,000 ounces, close to 500,000 ounces a year of production. Uh, you know, we are saw thing the other day of operating costs in the industry, you can count on one hand the number of operations now with operating costs less than $1,000 an ounce and all in sustaining costs, not operating, all in sustaining. And, you know, so what there, we know that there's probably more selling opportunities than buying opportunities. But again, 
that said, we also want to look at growing. So yeah, we're busy and uh, we're certainly looking at what can we do to control our destiny in the event of the Newcrest uh, Newmont merger. And it sets up a number of things, which I'll come back to this topic a little bit later as we when we wrap up the podcast, but the cornerstone nature of this asset and a platform that it offers any company, and I'll come back to tier one in a moment, and really breaking into that tier one by another set of standards there at Barrick, but I'll come back to that. But yeah, I mean, the M&A in the sector here, potential for this company to move down its own path, as you say, control its own destiny. Of course, there's the other way around where the company could look to be potentially sold, which will come back to that as well. But uh, it's a great setup, Ben. And then on top of that, you guys are not the marginal producer. The cost profile is absolutely impressive. And thanks to the team and the work to keep escalation off your back, it's really looking quite good here. And I think the, the share price is definitely starting to reflect that a bit. So good on you for that. Why don't we move into Lundine Gold here directly and give us a brief operations update, including production goals for the year, development milestones you expect to hit, and any other items, Ron, on your mind regarding operations? Yeah, you bet. So we've announced our Q1 production uh, to date, and it was just over 140,000 ounces and much better than anticipated because we ran some higher grades and recoveries were better. But we're still, you know, focusing on our guidance for the year of between 425 and 475,000 ounces. It is an underground operation, so you're going to have some variation in grade as you go through different parts of the ore body. And our guidance for the year in all in sustaining is eight seventy to nine four nine hundred forty dollars an ounce. The team at site, we just continue to focus on operational excellence. So, you know, we've gone. The plant was originally designed for three thousand five hundred ton per day, uh, which when we started up in two thousand nine November two thousand nineteen. We went to 4,200 ton per day. We operated at that and realized that through 22, we can do a bit more. So 23 onward right now, we're looking at running at 4,400 ton per day and doing the engineering right now to go to 5,000 ton per day. And we've been able, as you mentioned, been able to keep costs down. Part of that is the work the team does at site. Again, operational excellence, but it also helps we're in Ecuador. Ecuador is the US dollar. We don't have a currency tied to the US, it is US dollar. So we're not seeing the inflationary impacts that many other South American and Latin American countries are seeing currency impacts. Our power is 85, actually I've been told now it's 90% on the uh, hydro. So we're not seeing those big fluctuations that other jurisdictions are seeing due to oil and gas and coal prices fluctuating and for causing power prices to change. And we're just, and then the labor, so many other jurisdictions are seeing labor inflation, but mining is a new industry for Ecuador. And it's one that uh, people are saying, you know what, we'd like to maybe have a career in this because they see it as an opportunity for a career now. And uh, so we don't see the wage inflation like many other jurisdictions are seeing. So from a operation standpoint, the team at site just continues to do a good job. It's a great ore body. And uh, yeah, we just keep, we don't rest on our laurels and just keep pushing that, you know, that mantra operational excellence, keep trying to do more with less. Ron, let's touch on the capital structure here just briefly. Give the audience a quick overview here in terms of the cash and debt, where we stand on that, the shares outstanding. And then you already talked to some degree, the major shareholders, but uh, just talk about the board management ownership and any other major holders you'd like to mention. Start from your last question and move to the debt structure in that. We have currently, 
just out over 236.6 million shares outstanding. 59% of those shares are held by two strategic shareholders, Newcrest, the large Australian mining company, and the Lending Family Trust, 32 and 27. We're about 23% institutional. BlackRock, probably one of the larger fidelity, where it's pretty broadly held. 17% retail management holds just around 1% uh, outstanding stock. We are now, one of the other developments since last time we talked is we are now included in the Toronto Stock Exchange Index, the TSX S&P Index, uh, which certainly in addition to the GDXJ and also the uh, MCSI Canadian Global Index. So, so those last two, the MCSI and the S&P were just recently. You know, in terms of debt, as of the end of the year, our Q1 financials will be coming out in two weeks around May 9th, 10th. Um, but our debt at the end of, of the year was around 670 million. Now, part of that was the gold prepay, which I mentioned earlier, we've paid that back in full. That was about 200 million. Some of that was taxes, so roughly 180 million in debt wiped off at the start of the year. The rest of that is in a stream which we have the opportunity to buy that back at, uh, buy 50% of that back for 150 million in June of 2024. Uh, so, and then we have senior debt, which at the end of the year was running around 182 million. And we made a fairly large payment I know in Q1. And our plan is to essentially pay that debt back. We are looking at restructuring it such that it's a, like a revolver but paying it down so you can see really by by june of next year we will essentially have the senior debt gone and the stream cut in half so you know and, and i think even based on some of the analyst projections in our own we'll probably be in a net cash positive position and q2 of this year yeah, that's great, Ron, and it just shows what this operation is able to do and how quick this is coming back. The buy-down of the stream is great. Uh, really good condition here to be set up. It gives you guys so much more options as well to be able to take on potential new debt in the future to be able to leverage operations. It gives you lots of cash for other things like dividends and maybe M&A activity, et cetera. So good on you guys for that. Through expiration at Fruita del Norte, you've been able to replenish reserves after depletion and the success points really to growing the overall resource base in the coming years. And of course, with that, I suspect mine life increases would be coming. Talk about this work and the upside that this project has, Ron, with respect to growth, more discovery, and the potential to expand operations further. We announced early this year that through our conversion program, which we've been started drilling on that in 21 through till the end of September in 2022, we were able to, we had mined 1.38 million ounces and we added 1.58 million ounces uh, to bring our reserves back up above 5 million ounces. We lost uh, about a gram per ton, so our average grade is 8.7 grams per ton, which is still very unique and very high for this industry um, because we brought some more of the material in the southern part of the ore body, which is slightly lower grade. But that said, our resources obviously also increased. We still have 1.7 million ounces in, in, in inferred and roughly about uh, 1.3 1, 1. million ounces 
and indicated that weren't brought into the uh, measure that weren't brought into the reserves. We're drilling that now to try to continue to do that. What's interesting, as I mentioned earlier, our throughput expansion. When we did the feasibility study in 2016, we had about 13-year mine life at 3,500 ton per day. Today, we have a 13-year mine life, but running at 4,400 ton per day. And with that conversion drilling that's underway right now, opportunities, that's one of the things we're looking at is to explode to 5,000 ton a day. But that's actually not the most exciting part. The most exciting part we've got is a, a new program, which our new VP of Exploration, Andrea Oliveira, really slapped me upside the head and said, look, why aren't we drilling near the mine versus out looking out in the horizon? And we started doing this in July of last year. And that program, while we've been drilling now nine months, has already hit significant mineralization. We put out a release in July with some of the new discoveries. And some of this potentially has the ability to be contiguous with FDN as it is. So FDN has this potential to be growing even more and more. Yeah, Ron, and with that, this whole area, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're dealing with stuff that's generally within probably a 10 kilometer radius, maybe a little bit more, if not less, in, in most of these cases, correct? Well, the regional program was about 10. The stuff we're talking about now, the near mine, it's actually within our operative area of our permit. When I was at site just last month, uh, there's drills right beside camp, where our camp is right now. So this is right around the existing infrastructure, so even, even closer. So there's some real opportunities to, you know, what, what we like to say is, Conversion is near term. That's allowing us to add, move resources into reserves in the really near term. The near mine is midterm because that has the potential to add resources, but in the operative area. So that may need maybe a, an amendment to our permit, but the infrastructure is all there, maybe further expansion, et cetera. And then the regional program is longer term because those are, as you say, they're still within 10 kilometers, easily haulable to to Del Norte, but those would need different permitting, probably different agreements with the government, a little longer term. So that's how the other way we like to look at it. Looking forward to seeing how this continues to go and expand here. Ron, as you know, Mark Bristow, Uncle Mark, as I like to call him, says that in the gold business, a, a tier one asset is an asset that can produce 500,000 ounces of gold a year for more than 10 years at the lower half of the cost curve. To me, Fruta del Norte was envisioned to be tier one from the day that it was acquired by Lundin, and it is at a threshold today where we are at tier one and also going beyond tier one. What are your thoughts on this? That's the goal. You know, we look at, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you can probably count on one hand the number of operations that have ASIC all-in sustaining costs per ounce of less than $1,000. You know, where are we at 500,000 ounces for 10 years? Yeah, if we get the expansion to 5,000 tons per day, yes, we are. And yeah, there isn't, you know, when you stack the operations at Fruta del Norte on a cost, production, expiration upside, there's not a lot of other spots in the world that are like this. And, and someone said to me the other day when we were, talking about options and everything. They said, well, Ron, you know, if you look at lending gold and I look at Fruta del Norte and this was a totally independent person and said, to me, Fruta del Norte is almost like gold strike in that, you know, it's a potential to be a very significant asset and a type of asset that you can build a company off of. But 
at the same time, when you look at a lot of the majors whose costs, you know, it's funny, our margins are what some of the majors operating costs are. Yeah, we definitely, I think, are, have some targets on our back, but we keep looking forward and looking backward. It's a great platform for sure. As the rest of the debt gets wiped off the books over the next year or so, Ron, what are your thoughts on stabilizing that dividend to a consistent rate to really attract um, another class of investor out there in the markets who look for those stable dividend payers, but also are folks that are oriented towards natural resources if they see the thesis with respect to gold? You know, what are your thoughts there as you guys, you know, really make this balance sheet even better? Thoughts on that dividend and maybe the consistent nature of a dividend? What you're saying is what we actually did do. We, when we announced, I think it was probably around this time last year, that we were considering a dividend policy. We could see that. So we talked to a lot of investors. You know, is it a fixed dividend with a variable component? Should it be 100% variable or should it be fixed? And a lot of investors excuse me, told us, you know what? We prefer fixed dividends because we can plan on that. So we made the decision, we set our dividend policy at 100 million annually. So we set our dividend policy such that at that time, our yield was marketing. We're still, even with the rise in share price we've seen lately, we're still one of the higher yield dividend stocks, but fixed at 100 million. So we've now switched to quarterly dividends. Our first dividend was set where we said was gonna be semi-annual. Now we've switched to quarterly. So 10 cents a share paid quarterly. And as we clean up the balance sheet, you know, the question will be, and we've had this already, uh, what about increasing the dividend? And obviously that's going to depend on all the other opportunities we have to expand, to grow M&A. It's all got to be part of the mix, but it's, and I tell investors this, it's certainly one of the things that, uh, that we and our board consider is to look at potential increase in that fixed dividend, you know, which is currently say 40 cents a share annually, 10 cents a share paid quarterly. I think this is definitely part of that overall value proposition. You got the dividend component, you're, you're keeping cash for the potential opportunities out there and also keeping cash for the organic growth and funding that. I think this is all part of a, a bigger strategy to really push the maximum value out of the equity. And, and this is uh, off to a really good start. On another subject, Ron, you are no stranger to jurisdictional risk. This has been quite fluid and can change sometimes like the wind, as you know. But we're seeing, you know, a number of challenges in, in a number of forms, really, from changes in Peru, changes in Chile, Mexico, renegotiations in Panama, for example, with Cobra de Panama. How comfortable are you in Ecuador? And what do you think really de-risks the jurisdiction? Things such as strong government and community relations. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. There's so many changing, the horizon's changing in so many different in, in different countries and changing in different ways too. Um, you know, it, for us in Ecuador, right now, in, mining is still a small industry. And for the two operations, Fruits del Marte and Mirador, which is owned by a Chinese consortium, it's a 60,000 ton a day copper open pit operation. We feel pretty confident that, uh, you know, we're doing what we said we're going to do. You know, so March and Chipe, the province that we're both in, has gone from on many different statistics being number 22 or 23 out of 24 provinces to being in the top 10 in terms of uh, GDP per person, taxes, increase in taxes, reduction in poverty, variety of different things. 
and it's all because of, of responsible mining. And, you know, local, local community support is really strong. We do a survey for, we do a, we go out and actually do a, almost like a consensus or census of every family around our area in Los Encuentros and Yansatsa. It's quite an effort, but it's something we did going back to 2015 when we first got here. So we've got a really good track record of how we're perceived and also things that we could do be doing better and all those things we take it to try and learn from it. And right now in the local communities, actually the, the rating, and this is done for countries across South America. It's a very uh, standardized uh, methodology. Chile, which had the highest rating was 0.56. And the rating for mining in Los Encuentros and Yansatsa, which is around the areas, towns around Fruit del Norte was 0.63. It was higher than even the, the, what's considered to be one of the best mining jurisdictions in, in South America. And, you know, so we got strong local support. Uh, you know, they're seeing so many changes there. And we have agreements with the government that are pretty well, pretty well structured. So this whole issue of expropriation or changing the agreements, agreements are in place for 25 years, renewable for another 25 years. And, you know, we feel pretty confident. The issue in Ecuador, to be real honest though, for your listeners is the product producers are doing great. The government is just in a, not in a great position right now. And the real issue is on the developers that want to be moving projects forward. They're, they're struggling more because the government does not want to sign any permits or licenses or anything like that to really give them the green light to move ahead, given the uncertainty at the national level right now. That's good information. And we'll see how some of these issues play out throughout the world. And definitely, I think, as you know, this thing starts, everything really the basis for getting this project where it is today is gotta be surrounding, you know, strong relationships with the government, irrespective of who was there at the time. And then also community, local community work and relations. On that front, actually, Ron, why don't we move to that here? just talk about the local community work that the company is doing and also just include here with the community work, uh, if you'd like, you know, work on training. The very important thing, which often gets overlooked is wisdom transfer. And then of course, safety. Those are such key points. And I think, you know, and that's obviously when we talked to the local communities, when we first got here, that was jobs was obviously number one on there and then local procurement. And, you know, we knew so Marchand Chippe, as I mentioned earlier, it had zero mining experience other than artisanal or small scale mining. And so we knew we had to start early. So we started partway halfway through construction with a early high school education program. Then training, we bought simulators. We also hired a firm that sim did put together a program that simulated our process. And we actually started bringing these students to site during construction. So they got the feel of living in camp, being in that type of an atmosphere, seeing, going out and seeing the mill, if you're gonna work in the process plant, what's it, as it's being built, the miners actually going underground. We had some test adits set up so they could practice drilling, not just on the simulators, but actually on the actual machine. With that program, I think we had 283 that graduated from that program and 260 of them are working for us now today. All of those are from uh, rings one and two, which is Los Encuentros and Yansatsa. You know, I talked to some of those young people now and they're, you know, they have careers now. 
Whereas before they didn't know what they were going to be doing with their lives, thought they might just be, you know, carpenters or working on the farm or whatever, but they have careers now and young, young men and ladies and training was so important, you know, to a lot of that support we have from local communities, but it's just so neat to see how we're, how people's lives are being changed within Los Encuentros and Yansatsa. You know, I had the pleasure of meeting one of the young ladies that went through the program and said, my kids are so proud of me. She's a truck driver underground. And another young lady who actually operates a jumbo drill. And I've heard some of our senior guys and expats say that she's probably one of the best drill operators they've ever seen, period. And yeah, it's just really neat to see how people's lives are being changed. But you're right, training was so important. So currently, 50% of our workforce is from the province. 90% of our workforce is from Ecuador. That was critical to us going forward. It's got to be very satisfying, Ron, to be able to do that. And, and just fantastic, those statistics there that you mentioned, um, all yeah. of the local hiring. and You did ask about safety. It's something I don't like to talk about a lot because I'm very superstitious. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, our team at site in the operations, uh, exploration, unfortunately, did have a medical incident. But operations just recently crossed 4 million hours worked without an incident. So that's with uh, that's not without that's with a lost time, but also no medical incident for four million hours worked. You know, if we were in the United States, Canada, Australia, where you've got very established, you know, MSHA and all the others, OSHA and all the others, our team at site would have been receiving significant recognition of that. And we're all really proud of everything they do at site. But again, to have that focus on health and safety in a place where Mining wasn't known and they're, they're doing jobs they never thought they would be doing and to have reached that milestone, it's great. That's an interesting one and I, I'll try not to digress too much on this, but uh, you know, I think it's a, a reflection of not only the programs put in place and the team that's here, but also just the mindset of the community, the health of the community and these things that really relate to this record. And then people have to ask, well, how can you be so productive and have such a good safety record? And I think this points back to what I just said, because it's certainly not a government regulatory body that's doing this. And I'll reflect back to the U.S. for a moment. You can have all the rules in the world and look at the status of you know safety records there or even the societal health, for example. This is great and this should be a model that even advanced economies, if you will call it that, should look at. There's entities that I know of and work with in the United States that these people can barely get out of the office because they've got so many meetings and so much red tape to cut through, Ron, in a given day that by the time all the meetings are over with, the work date is over. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's, anyway, yeah. Let's, sorry to digress on that, but this is a great record. No, no. It's actually brought some points I hadn't thought of before, you know, because I'd worked and when I was in the uranium space, we had mines in, in Utah and that M shop. And you're right. You know, sometimes... And I look at our programs that we that our team has put together at Fruta and what we had at Amshaw. I would take any day what what the team has put together here now and take that back to those mines in Utah, and I think we'd have a hell of a lot better performance. Absolutely agreed with that. And I'll, I'll try not to digress further here, but even the these some of these agencies in the U.S. now pressing the agendas of other agencies, uh, which is a whole nother level of. Uh, problem that has really come in over the last few years 
which is sad. I won't go into particular agency names on this, but uh, yeah, it, it's really, really troublesome. And so this is really good to see such high production, good health and mindset of people, great safety record, and you guys are just firing on all cylinders in this regard. Let's touch on another issue here before we uh, wrap up, Ron. Coming yeah. back to mergers, partnering, acquisitions. As you know, the company is a single asset, single jurisdiction business, but of course, I'll point out of high quality. Organic growth, along with the potential for M&A, is part of the strategy at the company. Ron, share what you can here, but will the company be looking within the Americas? Will it remain in Ecuador as Ecuador-focused? Because right now, the sector still has juniors, to some degree, who are valued really in a counter-cyclical fashion still. You know, what are your thoughts on this subject? You know, in terms of Ecuador, our focus is on organic growth. And we've got such a great land package that we picked up in the original acquisition that that's where our focus is. And, and Andre, our new VP of Exploration, kind of smartened us up a bit to, and I'm really happy with the strategy that we've got there now. Now, many people have asked us, say, well, look at what you've done in Ecuador. Why wouldn't you take that, that uh, competitive advantage and go to other projects? But it goes back to the other point you made about single country. You know, even though we feel like we've got great agreements, we've got good relations with the government, local communities and everything, we still know that that can change and we're better off to look elsewhere. So our focus is on North and South America. We will look a little further afield, but, you know, I would say Australia, Africa, Asia are kind of off the map. You know, we are maybe looking at some things in potentially in some other jurisdictions, but really focused on North and South America, ideally a development project, because that, you know, what the team did really well with the construction of Fruta del Norte, quite happy to go into some more challenging jurisdictions in these, in, you know, there are challenging jurisdictions even in North America, but, you know, in South America, because I think we can go into some of those and show what we were able to do here in Ecuador. Yeah. And then, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities out though, because as you say, fruit is a great asset. So it's challenging. We can't grow for the sake of growing. It's got to be a creative. So it's a bit more challenging, but the key for us is to be patient, be smart, creative when we're looking at things. What can we do maybe? And, you know, we've got good opportunity with the cash flow we're generating and that sort of thing that we can be maybe a bit more creative and just continue to look for the right opportunity. You covered that well. I think definitely the, the sake of M&A for the sake of M&A, if you will, not going to do it. It's got to be something that actually is truly value enhancing that really fits the company. And then, of course, you guys have a high bar set already with uh, FDN. I mean, it's it's going to be tough to find things like that, you know, looking for tier one development projects. That's going to be a tough one. Obviously, there's a value considerations there as well. But, you know, you and I could probably have a separate conversation more private about uh, those particular what assets those might be. But anyway, I appreciate the comments there. And let me just follow it on, Ron, with just one other, just to flip it to the other end of the spectrum. Obviously, the company is very attractive to a major at this point. Would a takeout transaction be entertained if the price was right? Absolutely. You know, Lucas, who unfortunately lost last year, always used to tell me, he said, Ronnie, never get wed to assets. The front, the for sale sign's always in the front lawn. Absolutely would. And, and it was funny, we had one investor a few weeks ago put it quite, he said, well, based on what you guys are saying, it sounds like there's more selling opportunities than buying opportunities. And I said, yeah, that's actually a good way to look at it. Yeah, you know, I, I think investors, your listeners and I don't have to be worried that you've got a case here where management gets wed to these assets and 
we won't do something just because we want to continue to to be part of it. It's uh, values right. Yeah, we're definitely for sale. Ron, any plans to upgrade the U.S. listing to say the NYSE Amex over the next year or so to really further improve market access? Because I would, of course, wager that. You know, the U.S., well, it has its problems, the stock market there, the capital markets are the largest in the world. Uh, what, what do you think about a potential dual list, you know, higher level in the U.S.? Yeah, we've talked about that. You know, we are dual listings. We're also on Stockholm, given the, the Swedish background, the lending family, et cetera, and, and the Toronto. We've talked about it, but at this point in time, I think we're more focused on, you know, now that we're in the TSS index and others that uh, we're seeing the liquidity. We have a number of very large institutional investors. We're not too sure of the benefits right now. It's something we continue to look at, but we're not sure about the benefits right now. And uh, quite frankly, I'd rather we, myself and our team, we focus on growth and what more we can do here. And we continue to look at it, but it's not, I would say probability is probably low that we would do that at this time. Fully understandable. And of course, uh, you know, folks, if they really want the company, they're going to go find it. And if it's on the TSX, so be it for over in Europe. Ron, look, I appreciate the time. Uh, if there's anything else, uh, please add it in here. But uh, for potential investors who are listening in, London Gold has a market capitalization of about 4.4 billion Canadian dollars. Why should the company be considered in the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio? You know, I think, yeah, we've certainly seen a, a run up in this price lately, but, with the, you know, some people ask, is the, you know, if we missed the boat, no, sorry, the boat hasn't even left dock yet. You know, the expiration potential we have, we're rising gold market, the continued focus that the team has to do more with better, and you got a great asset. There's not a lot of opportunities to be involved in a tier one asset. So I think there's a lot of factors that, uh, and, you know, in strong lending family, uh, support in terms of a large shareholder there. I think there's still a lot of reasons that fa institutional families and family offices and that should be looking at lending gold. Plus, they have a little benefit of a good strong dividend yield on top of that. And Ron, the best way for folks to reach out to the company? Uh, the best way is to, uh, a lot of information on our website at uh, lendinggold.com. And you could also reach out if you have particular questions, reach out to Finley Heppenstall our Director of Investor Relations and Corporate Development. And we'd be happy to answer any questions you have. And his email address is also available on our website. Excellent. Ron, always a pleasure. Thanks for the update. Keep up the good work. And I'm looking forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks very much.